Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to episode 50 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. It's kind of funny, we're bombarded all the time with insurance advertising, right? Every day, just ask, uh, you know, Jake from State Farm. Insurance is an important personal finance topic. It's not one that I tend to spend much time on. And maybe that's just because I'm not at a point in my life where I've had to buy that much insurance yet. I've bought some. But then I thought, you know what, what a great topic to cover, answer some questions. So let's give a quick primer on insurance today. I'll tell you some stories. I'll give you some of my opinions. And then we're going to bring in an outside expert, Brock Buckles, who owns BC Brokerage, to give you some of his insider knowledge. So first and foremost, I'm going to quote Ben Carlson here. Great writer. If you're a fan of the best interest, odds are you've seen me talk about Ben Carlson before. And Ben has a good quote about insurance that I 100% agree with. The idea is, quote, insurance protects wealth. It doesn't grow wealth, end quote. So let's break that down, the first part. Insurance protects wealth, right? The fundamental idea behind insurance is that it protects you from financial downfall that you couldn't cover yourself with the assets that you have, okay? So for example, could your current assets cover a 50 or $100,000 medical bill? I know the answer for me is no. And for that reason, it makes sense for me to have catastrophic medical insurance that can cover a bill like that. If my house burns down, could my current assets cover the whatever $200,000 replacement cost? Again, the answer is no. So in that case, insurance protects my wealth by providing me the funds needed to replace or to fix whatever problem life has thrown my way. Of course, there's a trade-off there, right? Insurance has a cost. Insurance has usually monthly premiums, something like that, maybe an annual premium. This bill that you have to pay where you're trading some money right now for protection against some big risk. But there are some cases where it doesn't make sense to have certain types of insurance. So I'll tell you a quick personal anecdote. Kelly and I recently canceled our dog Sadie's pet insurance. Now, some of you might not even know that pet insurance exists. It does. And for a while, we were paying about $45 a month for pet insurance that basically would cover any sort of vet medical bill, except for there was a $1,000 deductible. So if you do the math, we had to pay roughly 600 bucks a year in premiums. And then we'd have to pay the first $1,000 of medical bills. And after those first $1,000, insurance could kick in. So I kind of sat there and I asked myself, what kind of risk am I protecting against here? If, let's say Sadie had something bad happen and she needed a $3,000 surgery, I could cover that with my own assets. I wouldn't necessarily like it, but I'm not sure it's worth spending $600 a year to protect myself from a risk that I could pay for anyway. So that's the kind of calculus that goes into insurance math. And granted, I just read an article because I was curious Some of you pet owners will find this interesting. I'm not sure everyone will, but I thought to myself, what if Sadie had something really bad happen to her? What if it was a $10,000 surgery? I hate to say it, but there does come a point with pets where even though you love them and they, they might consider them part of the family, you have to ask yourself, does it make sense to 
pay for this at all, right? Okay, that gets into a, a philosophical conversation there. And maybe if you're the kind of person who would pay anything to keep your pet alive, maybe it does make sense for you to have pet insurance because you might be protecting yourself against a $10,000, $20,000 stay at the vet's office. But if you cut the line a little bit lower, then pet insurance might not make sense for you. Again, simply because those expenses are things that you might be able to cover out of pocket. Cars is another good one. I know some people who they have the car insurance that protects other people on the road, right? Most states, if not all states, I think they mandate that you have insurance that can protect other drivers in case you're at fault and you need to pay for someone else's car replacement or you need to pay for someone else's medical bills from an accident that you caused. But you don't have to have insurance on your own car for your own car's replacement value. And I know many people out there, they don't have that kind of insurance because they say, you know what, if I get in a car crash and I need to replace my car, just going to do it, right? I'm just going to pony up and pay for a new car that way. So that's how insurance protects your wealth. But then the second part, going back to Ben Carlson's quote, is that insurance doesn't grow your wealth. And some of you actually might not understand where that part of the quote even comes from. Like, why is that necessary to say? Of course, it doesn't grow your wealth. All the examples that Jesse's talked about right here involve paying premiums, which are expensive, and they only help you if something bad happens to your life. How could insurance ever grow your wealth? And the answer is there are some insurance products out there that we might get into later with Brock. One example is, is a whole life insurance. Now, this is an insurance product. Life insurance is a great one. We haven't talked about that yet. So let me talk quickly about life insurance, and then I'll talk about whole life insurance. Life insurance, of course, protects your loved ones in case you die. That's what it's there for. A good example might be a young parent with a mortgage on a home. And if that parent were to die, the question is, how much money would the family need today to replace that parent's future income? And another very smart question to ask is, how much money would the family need today to perhaps pay off the mortgage on the house, right? To pay off the debts that, that the family has. So term life insurance is a life insurance policy that all that does, all it does is you pay in a monthly premium and it pays out in the event that you die. Simple, very simple and straightforward. But then there's a product called whole life insurance. And the way whole life insurance works is, yes, it has that feature where there's a payout if you die. But what whole life insurance does, is it says, you know what, we're going to take some of your monthly premium and we're actually going to invest that on your behalf. So that by the time you're older, let's say you pay insurance premiums from the time you're 25 to the time you're 60. And you live that whole time. You never die. So you've paid all this money in, but you've never actually used the insurance. Agreed? And by the time you're 60, you might look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? I don't really need life insurance anymore. My kids are out of the house. College has all been paid for. My wife and I have this really comfortable retirement nest egg. I don't really need life insurance. I don't need to protect myself against that risk. What whole life insurance has done is they said, great. At that point in your life, you can actually withdraw money from your insurance policy because we've been investing it on your behalf. And some of you right now are listening and saying to yourselves, that sounds pretty good. However, the math 
behind the scenes tells a much different story. Whole life insurance charges you a very high monthly premium, and the investing side of the product isn't that good. You'd be much better off if you bought a term life insurance policy for much, much cheaper, and then simply invested the difference in monthly premiums off on your own. You don't need a whole insurance policy to do your investing for you. You should separate your insurance and your investing functions. Insurance through a cheap term policy, and then investing somewhere else through, say, a low-cost index fund or a diversified portfolio. Okay, so that's why, getting back to Ben Carlson's quote, he says, insurance protects your wealth, but it doesn't grow your wealth, right? What he's saying there is that products like whole life insurance or universal life insurance, it goes by a few other names. Annuities are a version of an insurance uh, investment product. These products all have substandard investment sides to them, and therefore they don't grow your wealth in an effective manner. So some of you listening might own whole life insurance or annuities. I don't mean to offend you. Some of you might even sell whole life insurance or annuities. I don't mean to offend you either. I'm just here to explain the math. And the math is very straightforward. And it says that these insurance policies that claim to have investments tagged onto them, they're suboptimal. Okay, so that's a bit of a spiel on insurance. Now, there are many different types of insurance. A lot of them you've heard of. Some of them we've talked about today. Some of the more important ones, life insurance, right? If you were to die and you were to leave your loved ones in lurch, you might need life insurance. You might need insurance to replace your salary for a number of years. You might need insurance to pay off your home, like I already mentioned. Now, you can do a lot of this math on your own. You can do some rough estimating on your own. If you have a trusted advisor of some sort, it could be an accountant, it could be a, a CFP financial planner or a, a wealth manager, financial advisor, it could be the insurance salesperson themselves, if you trust them, ask them for their opinion on how big of a policy you need. It's important that you don't undercover yourself. You need to have a big enough policy to actually cover your financial risk. But yeah, lean on some experts in your life for that. Auto insurance, very straightforward. Like I said before, you can buy insurance. You need insurance most likely to protect other people on the road, right? Because that's a pretty big risk. And, and you need to, many states say that you need to protect other people on the road through your insurance policy. And you might choose to protect yourself as well. Homeowners insurance, renters insurance, in my opinion, a great idea. Renters insurance, sometimes it's mandatory, sometimes it's not, meaning legally, that is. And whether you actually need it from a mathematical point of view, it kind of depends on your asset base. I could see a situation where a $10,000 renter's insurance policy doesn't really make sense because you have $100,000 in cash in your bank account and you can just cover that expense if something bad were to happen. I get it. Health insurance, pretty much mandatory. Very few people have the kind of asset base where it makes sense for them to self-insure. And you'll hear that term. I don't know if I've used that term yet today. I should have used it by now. Self-insuring is this idea of just saying, listen, I've got a lot of money in the bank. I don't need outside insurance. My own nest egg can cover me for that financial risk. The next two, one is a long-term disability insurance. Now, that's an interesting one that I haven't really dug into too much. I think the need for long-term disability insurance, which again, it protects you against the risk of not dying, but getting in some sort of terrible accident where you are disabled long-term. And I really think it's a function of who your dependents are, 
you know, if you have young children, if you need to pay off a mortgage, if, if these things are going on, it might make sense for you to have long-term disability insurance. The next one, long-term care insurance. This one applies mainly to older listeners, people who are approaching an age where they ask themselves, am I going to go to a nursing home? Who's going to pay for that? How do I pay for that? It's interesting. I'm not an expert on long-term care insurance, but of the reading that I've done, my understanding is that it can be difficult to actually enact your long-term care policy, meaning you can own the policy, you can pay your monthly premiums, and then when time comes for an owner, an insurance policy owner to say, hey, I need $15,000 a month for this nursing home, it doesn't always work out. And that is kind of one of the scary things, in my opinion, about all insurance in general, is this idea that the insurance company, they do have a financial incentive to very carefully understand whether your claim is legitimate, right? I'm paying this insurance company $100 a month for homeowner's insurance, let's say. And then when the time comes when my home burns down and I need $300,000 from them, they have a really strong incentive to say, wait a second, Jesse, let's really make sure that, that your house did burn down. Let's make sure that it truly was an accident. Let's make sure that the value of the home was indeed $300,000 and that's what we should pay you. There's often some friction when it comes time to make a claim and get paid on your insurance policy. In general, I mean, that's one reason why sometimes the cheapest insurance isn't the best. You should try to do some due diligence, do some research, and read up on if your particular insurance provider has any sort of history of making it difficult for its customers to actually make claims when needed. Okay, little, little aside there mainly because for long-term care insurance, I have heard some horror stories from some clients of long-term care insurance essentially not working in the way that they were led to believe it worked. I've seen some people talk before about identity theft protection. To be honest with you, I don't know a lot about it. I understand, you know, I think you probably understand at this point in the podcast too, what identity theft protection protects you against, whether it's needed, how it works, what it costs, I'm not sure. All I know is that it's it's growing in popularity, unfortunately, right? Because it means identity theft is growing in popularity. And then the last one that, again, is growing in popularity is umbrella insurance. Umbrella insurance, like the umbrella over your head, kind of has a, a wide area of protection. And it's often purchased by people who need to protect their assets above and beyond what their current insurance policies do. So for example, if someone has significant savings or significant assets, let's say someone has, I don't know, $5 million from selling a business and they cause an injury in the other driver and that other driver maybe sues them, takes them to the court and says, hey, you T-boned me at that red light, caused me pain and suffering. I'm suing you for a million dollars. Well, there's a chance that if they win that suit, our main character is gonna have to pay the million dollars out of pocket because they caused an accident. Umbrella insurance can help protect against that. Maybe you own a swimming pool. Maybe you own a rental property. But there are some things you can do in your life that present a little bit extra risk. And umbrella insurance provides protection to your assets in case something were to happen where another person could make a claim against your assets for pain and suffering, for an injury, for whatever it may be, a wrongful death, something like that. So umbrella insurance is certainly something that is growing in popularity and depending on your circumstances in life, might be worth looking into. Okay, I think at this point in the podcast, 
we're going to bring in Brock Buckles. So as I mentioned before, Brock is a, uh, he's an owner at BC Brokerage, meaning he, he matches up his clients. He understands, he gets to know their clients and figures out what their insurance needs are. He then shops around on behalf of his clients to find the most competitive rates, the most generous coverages, the easiest insurance providers to work with, and then provides his clients with recommendations based on those kind of factors, cost and coverage and an ease of making claims. So Brock really is a, a marketplace expert and works with people every day with various insurance needs. So we're gonna pepper him with some questions and lean on his expertise to guide us through this insurance conversation. Hey, Brock, thanks for joining me, man. How you doing? Doing well, Jesse. It's uh, good to be here with you, man. Cool, cool. Thanks for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. And I figure, Brock, I mean, maybe a good place to start is I let the audience know a bit about who you were, but maybe you can give us some of your backgrounds of what you do over at, at BC Brokerage, just so the audience can get a feel for, you know, the kind of insurance, the depth of knowledge that you have and, and what your background is. Yeah, for sure. So for those of you listening, we're going to try to make this interesting because I know insurance <laughs> is not the first thing on your mind. But yeah, like Jesse said, my name is Brock Buckles. I'm based out of Indianapolis and I'm the co-founder of an insurance brokerage called BC Brokerage. We work exclusively with the only financial planners across the country to help their clients with insurance. And, you know, I like to thank Jesse that we're, we're kind of the good guys of insurance because it gets it gets a negative kind of nasty reputation. And everybody kind of thinks of these whole life selling people that are going to try to get you to buy products that, you know, you don't necessarily need to buy. And so we take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, we implement things when it's necessary and we work along with financial planners to make sure that it actually is going to fit into the financial plan long-term. So that's kind of a general overview of who I am and uh, what we do. Awesome. That works really well, Brock, because the listeners will have just heard me kind of sort of talk some smack, some, <laughs> some objective smack about yeah. whole life. But let's get into, yeah, I mean, what are some of the kinds of insurance products that normal everyday people need? Especially I'm thinking, Brock, some of, you know, most of my listeners are probably say 25 to 45, maybe with some young kids, working professionals. What are some of the conversations you're having with, with that cohort of people? That's a good question. And the first thing that I would say is, you know, make sure that you're thinking about disability income insurance and life insurance. Those are the two types of insurance for young people where it creates a lot of leverage. It can create a lot of ability to kind of keep the lifestyle that you want. So starting out with life insurance, right? And I would say for close to 99% of the time, all you need is, is just a good term insurance policy. And, and what you need to be thinking about when it comes to term insurance is paying off debt. If you have assets that you bought together, if you have a home that you bought with your spouse, you're going to want to make sure that's going to be paid off. Second thing you're going to want to think about is kids' education. A lot of people want to fund their, their children's education. Some people had their parents fund their education. So it's kind of their way of paying it forward and continuing the process. But one of the things that I always like to touch on, this is a really good thing to think about, is the continuation of lifestyle that comes from, from how much you might need from life insurance. So if you weren't here anymore, or your spouse wasn't here anymore, Obviously, that creates some things. Maybe the bills go up because you were paying medical bills. Maybe there needs to be, you know, childcare that's paid for that wasn't necessarily a concern before. So that last one, continuation of lifestyle, is definitely something that would be important to think about outside of just paying off debt and kids' education. 
And then, you know, with disability income insurance, I, nobody wants to think about disability. So I always encourage people to think about it as income protection insurance and really making sure that you're protecting your biggest asset. I have conversations with people often and they say, you know, I say, what's your biggest asset? And commonly they'll say, well, my home or my car or my whatever. And I'll say, well, what if I talked to you and, and told you that your biggest asset was probably your ability to go to work and earn income because that's what allows right. all of those other things, right? And so, you know, a lot of people see the premium on a disability policy and there's kind of some sticker shock there sometimes, but it's usually about one to 3% of your gross income to kind of protect the rest of it. So is it a little bit of a, a kick in the butt? Sure, but it's worth it. Gotcha. So when, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, so I just got married in September, don't have any kids. I was living in a home that was very affordable for one person. We're now moving to a home that's probably, it's only affordable with two salaries. Sure. But I don't have any kids. When you hear that, that little story, do you think both term life and some long-term disability insurance? Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, let's get this out of the way. Your chances of being disabled are substantially higher than your chances of passing away prematurely. Not to say that that doesn't happen, but statistically, it's much higher. It's actually about one in four, which a lot of people are dumbfounded to hear. About 25% of people, 25% of today's 20-year-olds will be disabled for at least one year before retirement. So yeah, pretty important to kind of look at So yeah, disability would be huge there. And then, you know, I would say it's all about the plan, right? So people say, how much life insurance should I get? I'm I'm 20, I'm married, we're buying a house, but that's really all we have to pay off right now. And my response to that is always, you know, term is cheap, right? So plan for 10 years out. Don't plan for what you're looking at right now, because the biggest thing that I hate having to talk to people about, and it's not because I hate talking about it, it's because I hate the situation that they're in, is when people need more life insurance, but they can't get it because their health has since declined or they've been diagnosed with something. So locking in that coverage and getting a good, affordable, cheap term life insurance policy when you're young, even for more than you think, right? You could get a couple million dollars sometimes for right around a hundred bucks a month. So it's, it's not like we're paying astronomical amounts. And then if anything does happen to your health, you've already taken care of the coverage. You already know that you have it. And so you kind of have gotten that out of the way. And people will kind of say, well, but that doesn't make sense to me. You know, I don't need it right now. It's like, okay, well, you're kind of betting on what your health is going to look like in the future. And that can be a tough one. Gotcha. So just out of curiosity, I mean, what is the average term? What is the average length of a of term life insurance policy? Is, is 10 years kind of fairly average? No, I, you know, I would say it depends on age. Okay. For people that are in their 20s, definitely most of the time they're opting to do a 30-year policy. Because that, if you think about it, right, if you're, if you're 25 and you buy a 30-year policy, that's going to take you to 55, right? That's still pretty young to not have life insurance unless you've just gotten to the points to where you don't really need it, you have sufficient assets, you've been really disciplined about saving and done some of those other things. But if you think about it, you know, a 25-year-old with a 10-year policy, it's going to take you to 35 years old. What if something happens between 25 and 35 and you need more insurance, you bought a bigger house, you've got three or four kids, and then now kind of up the creek without a paddle. So yeah, 20 years is really common for people that are kind of thinking about buying it in their late 30s and 40s. And you know, if you're in your 50s, 10-year terms become a lot more common because they just want kind of that buffer to get them to retirement. Totally makes sense. So what other kind of life events, Brock, should get people thinking that maybe they either have a completely different insurance need, like a, a new style of policy, or they need to increase or lower their coverage? For sure. So first one is when you're out, 
you know, getting your first job, I'd encourage you to just get the baseline package, right? Just get ahead of the ball, start thinking about it, get some term, get a DI policy. That's going to be good. You're going to start paying for it, forget it's there and, and be on your way. The other thing is obviously getting married. That's a huge time to be getting more insurance because obviously you're going to plan on doing things for each other and you're going to make decisions that you want to, you know, pursue with one another down the road. So you have to take into account what decisions that you guys are making together. And if you still want to accomplish those things, if one of you aren't here anymore, even though that's, that's a little bit morbid. And so those are, those are a couple of things that you want to think about for buying term insurance or, or good times to buy term insurance. Sometimes people are buying, you know, term insurance down the road when they're getting close to retirement. And then obviously, if you get into the bucket of permanent insurance or long-term care or something like that, those are completely different kind of time periods that you should be thinking about. Okay, got it. Well, Brock, so so then, you know, one thing I'm always weary of and, you know, dealing with whether it's clients here or readers of the best interest or or listeners is, you know, what kind of insurance is overkill? Or, Or maybe another way of saying it is like, what kind of insurance is a bad deal? We already kind of alluded earlier to that whole versus term debate. So maybe we can start with that and see where it takes us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen, I'm not going to sit here and say that most financial products or types of insurance or vehicles don't have a place in the marketplace or that no one needs them, right? But I will tell you, if it seems like you're going to meet with your financial planner and, and the focus of the meeting most of the time is, permanent insurance or converting more of your term insurance to permanent insurance, maybe just get a second opinion, right? It doesn't hurt because I will tell you, you should be doing things other than that. And there are justifications and purpose behind having whole life insurance, right? But here are the ones that I'll kind of lay out. First one, estate planning, right? You come from a wealthy family, inherited money, you build a fortune, you have a lot of money, you're over that federal or state tax threshold and you need to offset some of that tax. Permanent insurance could be a great way to do that right? Setting up something like an irrevocable life insurance trust or an islet to kind of minimize the amount that can be taxed from your estate. Great idea, right? So that that one does make sense. The second one would be for special needs. If you have special needs planning that you have to do, right? And so we can't bet if there's a family member or a child that has special needs that is going to have to continue to receive some sort of care down the road after their caretakers or the parents pass away, permanent life insurance is a great way to do that. It doesn't necessarily have to be whole life insurance, but it can be permanent life insurance, right? The other thing is, is if you have completely run out of everything else and other ways to put away money, right? So you're maximizing your 401k, you're putting money into taxable brokerage accounts, like you're doing everything that you possibly can. And if you don't start putting more money somewhere else, basically it's just going to sit in your bank account earning nothing. We have seen, you know, uses for it there. People do take advantage of it, even the fee-only world. But again, that's once you've literally maximized everything else. It's not what you should be doing from the get-go by any means. And then the the last one that I always kind of talk to people about is long-term care planning. So the vast majority of long-term care policies are now built on permanent life insurance chassis, which is good for a a variety of reasons. Quick, quick history lesson here of the long-term care market. But in the early 2000s, basically companies were coming out with long-term care and, you know, they didn't know how to price them. They didn't know how long to make the benefits, anything like that. And so what happened was People that got in early, really great deal. But then they started writing in these provisions saying that they could increase the premiums of the policies down the road. And so now you've got people that bought policies in 2004 that are seeing 30, 40, 50% increases in their premium year over year, which is really terrible. And so these permanent life insurance product hybrid policies that include long-term care features 
have come out and are better in a lot of ways, one of which is they can't just randomly increase the pricing for you. Those are kind of the, the times where I believe it can make sense to, to use permanent life insurance, but the vast majority of people don't need it. Gotcha. And just, you know, rough estimate, Brock, out of all the conversations that you're having with these fee-only clients, I mean, what percentage does that kind of whole life conversation at least make sense to, to bring up? Less than 5%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Less totally than five, fair. Less than 5%. I mean, really less than 5%. I, I would say one, but I want to be careful there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, but, but less than 5%. Very little. I can say, I can safely say that for sure. So listeners keep that statistic in mind. Yeah. Whole yeah. life insurance or, or permanent life insurance products typically don't make sense for you. Yeah. And if you've got a guy that's trying to sell it, sell you life insurance as a bank or infinite banking, or some sort of debt elimination platform, or you heard them on the radio, run, get out of there. Like, <laughs> run to your bunker, shut the door, watch a movie, clear your head, and then just forget you heard about it. Because I've met guys like that. They're, they're like the same slick back hair, fast talking guys that you would think they would be. And so, yeah, stay away from that. Agreed. <laughs> and, and, this, it's, and, and it's not personal. And that's the thing. It's one thing, you know, I've, I've come across in, in my career here in Rochester, Brock, and it's, it's not a personal indictment of who they are as people. I right. don't begrudge anyone for trying to put food on the table. Sure. It really comes down to, let's look at some of the underlying math and some of the numbers and the dollars that come in versus the protection that the policy gives you or the dollars that might come out. It's just really hard to justify these permanent insurance products in most cases. Exactly, Jesse. And, and to kind of talk about it from the other side, if you just want to make it apples to apples, and this is why I'm either the, the light or the darkness for these guys on the insurance <laughs> side. But if you were to take $12,000, or call, let's call it $50,000, if you were to take $50,000 from someone and, and put that money into an investment account, you're going to be making very little money on that, right? If you get someone to put $50,000 a year into a permanent life insurance policy, the first year that you did that, the commission of that is probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five dollars to $45,000. That right? goes to the, the person who that sold goes, you that product. That goes to the person that sold you that product. So, you know, you have to question where their motivation lies. If they're going to make a hundred bucks off your investment account, or they're going to make $45,000 off your, you know, permanent life insurance account. You can't exactly be uh, completely unbiased, I suppose, if you've got that on your plate, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I've, I might have used that stat before on the blog of just how high those insurance commissions can be for some of those products. And absolutely. You know, Charlie Munger said it, show me the incentives. I will show you the outcomes. Yep. Absolutely. Brock, I mean, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, either to follow you on social media, they have a question for you, or maybe they even want to reach out and kind of talk shop with you. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, definitely. So it's Brock Buckles again, Brock at bc-brokerage.com. I'm on Twitter. I think it's at Brock Buckles. And then you can look at the website, bc-brokerage.com. I'm always willing to take time, talk to anybody about any questions that they have. If I can save you from buying something that you don't need, you know, at least point you in the right direction, uh, that's, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. Awesome. Thanks, Brock. We will throw all that in the show notes, listeners, so you can find it there. And uh, Brock, thanks a lot for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. 
Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.